This is the Teaching and Learning Podcast from the Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation at Lethbridge College in Southern Alberta, Canada. Located on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, it is the intent of our college community to honour the land from a place of connection and provide an avenue for us all to come together in a holistic way to share stories and learn from each other. Tune in, hit play, and get inspired as guests share their stories and ideas on the dynamic, ever-changing landscape of education, teaching, and learning. I am Donna McLaughlin, a learning experience designer in the Centre for Teaching, Learning, and Innovation at Lethbridge College, and I am the host of the Teaching and Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode number 16 of The Little Pod. Our guests today are Samantha Lenzi and Michelle Nee Darty Derbick. We'll be discussing systems thinking and how it's an innovative approach to developing education and learning experiences. Samantha Lenzi is the Provost and Vice President of Academic here at Lethbridge College. Hello and welcome, Sam. Hi, Donna. It's great to be here. It's great that you could join us. And Michelle is the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Strategist here at Lethbridge College. Hello and welcome, Michelle. Good afternoon, Donna. And so starting right at the beginning, what is systems thinking? So I think we need to start with what is a system to begin with, because people have different ideas of systems depending on if they're looking at it from a social perspective, maybe an IT engineering perspective. So a system is really anything with the same objective and focus and has a bunch of interrelated, interdependent parts to it. So interrelated elements all working together with the same objective and focus. Systems thinking is the idea that we really look at systems carefully when we're creating change and systemic change. And we truly ask ourselves what it is that we're actually doing when we do what we do. So there's an element of that, which is about being a systems practitioner, and that's what I am. And then there's an element of that around just giving systems thought, so systems thinking. So what are the unintended consequences of these actions? What are the boundaries of the system? Uh, what are the relationships, the perspectives? Who are the stakeholders? There are some of the common questions that we consider when we are thinking about systems thinking. Well, that sounds really fascinating. And Sam, would you like to add to that? Yeah, just a couple of things to add and, and looking at it from a leadership perspective as well, which um, is a good complement to what Michelle has explained. There's also patterns. It's the whole, right? What does the whole look like? So the external influences and the internal influences. And Michelle's got me reading some social change and systems thinking piece. So what is the culture? What does that look like? What are the people? How are they involved? Systems thinking when it was originally designed was really looking at the system from an I, me statement. And then how do I work in teams and how do I have old thinking and how does that look? And now it's morphed into this wonderful, complex, social, cultural, individual intersection piece within the whole of the system. And how does that make it much more complex? So it's not just about problems and how to solve them. It's about the people. It's about the changes. It's about problems that occur, ripple effects. And how do we move forward in a place that is so big and so um, ever changing and existing with the external influences that we currently have? So it's around us all the time. And it's really built on the on the idea of how do we 
deal with complexity without creating further unintended consequences. So uh, really it's about, you know, the, the systems practitioner, we're considering all the time how we influence the system around us the same way as a researcher would, because the way that we go through our work is systemic inquiry. We're not here to judge or make value judgments. We're here to find out what's going on in the system and the culture of the system and look for those leverage points and accommodations that it can, improve, it can improve a system for those participants who need it to be improved. So when we're thinking about systems change, the systems change always has to be culturally uh, feasible and ethically viable as well. So systems change brings in that complexity but it's also, it's like an antidote to project management. So what we've seen is a lot of project management, um, even in just the climate change world, that's really reduced value to the outcomes. So for example, there's a, a kind of a funny story, Sam will like this, I believe she likes cats, right, Sam? I do indeed. That, there's a massive cat behind you, so I'm <laughs> gonna tell you this story. So this story is a great story and a great example of systems thinking um, just not being on the table. And it all starts in the late 1950s, early 1960s in the country of Borneo. Now, the local uh, folks in Borneo were pointing out to those individuals who were coming in to give aid and to support uh, that they had a problem with wasps. And the problem with the wasps, obviously, wasps sting, uh, was that they were having these issues right they were out in the villages trying to do what they got to do and these wasps were stinging them and they were aggressive so unfortunately a decision was made without all the stakeholders engaged without the the people at the table to use ddt now ddt for most of us that can uh, can look back on on history we know it's a very villainized uh, chemical and for brilliant reasons they definitely dealt with the wasp problem through the use of ddt but now they had an un unintended consequence of being able to sit on the, uh, the ground of their accommodations and look up at the night sky because the wasps used to eat the caterpillars and the caterpillars had just gone absolutely bonkers and eaten through the roofs of the local people's houses. Now, what came next was a series of unintended consequences because you've got a bunch of caterpillars that normally would get eaten by lovely little geckos and geckos tend to be very fast little things. Now, the geckos have noticed the caterpillars slowing down. So the, ge the geckos are just eaten out every day. It's like being in a, in a buffet for them every single day with these very slow caterpillars. Now, what eats the geckos? Well, we have the unintended consequence of what eats the geckos is cats. So the cats start eating these very slow, very tired, lethargic geckos who have consumed the caterpillars with the DDT in them. And now the cats are starting to die off because they're fat and happy, but they have a problem that they've been consuming unmerciful amounts of DDT into their uh, system. So next, what happens with this long list of unintended consequences where stakeholders were never engaged, where the environment was never considered, where systems were never thought about at a high level, is that the cats start to die. And nobody likes to think about dead cats, especially Sam there with her, her massive cat picture behind her. But that was the realization of what happened. And rats started to take over the villages. So most rats are known for being disease carriers and these folks were no different. So they were now giving the local people 
the uh, horrific uh, disease of plague. And there lies a story of unintended consequences. And you might think that's a story in isolation, but in fact, there are numerous stories that illustrate why we need stakeholders at the table. And it does have a slightly happy ending to it though, which is where the World Health Organization decided to address this by parachuting in a bunch of cats to start off all over again with the cycle. And I've never found out what happened with the wasps, but uh, ultimately there was a bunch of parachuting cats. So let's avoid having to wrangle cats into parachutes, get our folks at the table, listen to our stakeholders and think systemically to avoid those unintended consequences. You know, that's fascinating, Michelle, because my favorite story for systems thinking is, is the wolves in Yellowstone, ah. right? So, so I look at that at least once a year. I watch the video of it, and I think about the wolves being parachuted into Yellowstone, but the background on that is the environmentalist, the professors, the experts were all at the table saying, we think this is a good idea, and here's why. But it wasn't so much a parachute on each one of them. It was really looking at the system that had been created because there was lack of balance within that ecosystem. They, the unintended consequences of the wolves, the river changed direction. Uh, some of the predators went farther out into the outskirts of Yellowstone. So that was good. So other populations grew. There were mice. There were all of these things. And after about five years, they could realize that putting the wolves in had unintended consequences, but they were positive on, on uh, Yellowstone and what that looked like. So there are some good pieces when they get the right people at the right table. So I can't agree with you more. And especially in these times when we think about it, what's interesting though is perspective and lens and position in systems thinking. So when you get to the leadership position, it's so easy to make a decision based on your own personal you know, I think this, so therefore this should happen. And when you go out and talk to stakeholders, sometimes you get, you talk to 12 people, you get 12 different opinions. And then, you know, someone's going to be upset with that. So how do you connect and create that relationship with the stakeholders you want to go out with? And I know a lot of leaders who are very uncomfortable going out and asking stakeholders their opinions because they have rules and they have things to do and they have budgets to think about and these massive systems to grow. So how, you know, I think we have to look at systems from uh, a balanced level, but also help leadership not have to make some of those decisions. And I can listen to you and not agree with you as a leader and have to go a certain way, but I sure have to acknowledge the fact that you came to the table with your expertise and your voice. You know, I love that, Sam. My soon-to-be 20-year-old son, uh, he's, in the, he's in the military, and um, he's also at university, and we were chatting, and he's very philosophical. So he was in, like, you know, deep philosophy mode, and he says, Mom, he says, are you a good follower? It's, we have lots of great leaders. Are you a good follower? He said, because there's an art to that as well. And I think sometimes for those of us that follow, we must also have the um, confidence in leadership that when we do get that stakeholder opportunity, that we sit at the table and we speak our truth respectfully and we become good followers that can actually still give our perspectives and our opinions rather than having the meeting after the meeting, which can be a real cultural issue as well. 
But I was listening to you there about um, what I think you were describing was wicked and messy problems. Yes, absolutely. So, so, you know, we see that all the time. We see that with addiction. We see that with the war on drugs. We see that with the war on terror. There will never be solutions to certain problems. I come from the northwest of Ireland. That will never have one solution for everybody. What it will have is accommodations. So it will have those leverage points where people can agree and movement forward. And from there, we build relationship and we build trust. So you have a gradual improvement of a systemic issue over time rather than a magic wand. And I see that very much in my role as equity, diversity and inclusion strategist is there is no magic wand. There is no pixie dust. It's just going to be gradual incremental steps that everybody can get on board with. And we think of that with education because education, higher education has always had in Alberta enough money to do what we need to do, right? There hasn't been a lot of these bottom line conversations that we're having now. And how do we stay sustainable from a monetary perspective? And what does that look like? And how do we have this shared look across our institution? What is worth it? What isn't worth it? When we think education is worth it. It's a very philosophical conversation that comes down to a lot of values and budget, right? We have to have both the financial piece and we have to have the value piece. And we have to be able to, as an education, tie those values together. So when I think of systems thinking, and when I put it within this institution in particular, I think, what are our values? What do we value? Because it's easy to say we just value education, but what does that mean? And how do we look at that? We can have the best program in the world and we can have nobody taking it. So what is the value of that program? And, you know, those will ebb and flow as there's different requirements out there. And then, as you say, there's different governments that come in and and then influence the education system. And we're all so different. So to say 26 institutions will do this in Alberta, that external influence then may contravene what we're trying to do as a value system within our own little system. So each one grows on each other. So we have to have these mutually reinforcing places, conversations. Are we still all on the same page? What does that look like as we're going forward? But again, I'll interject that leadership piece. We often don't have the time to have them. But what happens is when we don't make the time to have them, then we have unintended consequences. You have a bunch of cats and parachutes. We have a bunch of cats and parachutes, (laughs) and I may have launched a few myself. Sometimes you move and you move quickly and then you go, wow, I didn't see that coming. You know, back to Les Nessman, I thought turkeys could fly, but it's really, it's about who you have in the room, how long you have to make the decision and making sure that you're always going back to that shared consciousness within your own system. And we don't always do that. And, and, you know, I'm as guilty as any other leader on that one. And then you just got me thinking about something else, and that's reflection. So as systems practitioners, and I'm sure you've come across this, Sam, with your own training, we have both reflection and then we have reflexiveness as well. So we're reflexive and we're reflective. So that idea of reflection is just, okay, how did my week go? And I was kind of nudging Paula not so long ago. I was like, I'd love to see us have a reflective hour once a week where we reflect on our week. We think, okay, what could we have done differently? But then there's reflexivity, which is where we start thinking about our thinking. 
What assumption did I bring to that table? What bias was there in that moment as well? And it's just, it's so interesting when you get into systems thinking, it's literally like a life-changing perspective because you start to hold yourself accountable as well for your own assumptions in an ideal world. We all screw up, we all make mistakes, but that's an ideal world. You know, you bring up a good point. So Peter's work on the ladder of inference, right? So you grab the data, you make your assumptions, you base it on if it's first time through, you do whatever. The next time through, you sort of do the same because you're like, I've got this. I've done this before. What's interesting from a leadership perspective is when I think about the inference or the ladder of inference or where your mental models or whatever it happens to be is when there's a problem put on the table and I'll get, hey, Sam, I've got it. I just want you to know about it. And we've done this before. And the second I hear we've done this before is when I want to know more. The whole conversation stops and it's like, what do you mean you've done this before? Because I go right back to that systems thinking, did I just grab the data I had last time and I'm going to make the same decision and walk through it? Or did I really look at the situation that's there? Did I take that moment, like you said, to reflect not on my week, but look at the decisions, the information, the people in the room? Because a lot of times it's different than what I automatically want to do. And that's where that mental model change and where that ladder of inference comes in. Because the inference is that I will do what I did last time because it was successful. And I just make that choice. So I assume this is happening. Um, with students, I see it a lot. Well, I had a, a student who was tough before. So this is the route I'd like to take. And it's like, okay, what's different about this student? What's different about this situation? And when you gave me the book on the systems thinking for social change, that's what hit me the most is each student is very different, even though we know the steps and we follow policy for that system to really work when we're really thinking about it from a larger perspective, each individual student comes in with their pieces and we try to fit them in the box of our policy. And sometimes we just assume this is what's going to go on. So when we look at building and changing and adopting our policies, which is really our highest level of governance, that is our policing or our policies. We do and we don't based on our policies. That's when we have to look at them and say, have we done the right thing for as much of the population as we possibly can? So that unintentional consequences we've created for one student. And when do we step out and make the difference? And when do we just do the same, right? That system just perpetuates it. But from a leadership perspective, I have to constantly, whenever we say we've got this or yep, sounds like this again, or we have that language sort of rotates itself through, that's when we really have to stop and go, is it the same? Can we do something different? Systems thinking is just as much about the individual as it is about the whole institution, as it is about the world, as um, Michelle has brought in. What are the choices and have we reflected enough on the next time? Am I going to do the same thing? Am I going to make the same assumptions? Am I going to allow those patterns of behavior? So it, to me, it's the best way to question myself. Stephen Covey has the um, circle of influence, circle of concern. And if you ever wake up at three o'clock in the morning, he's got the best tips in the world. I have my phone now, but I used to have a piece of paper and pen. And I just write out what's in my head because at that moment, I have a circle of concern because I can't influence anything. So I've got to take that circle of concern ideas and put them into influence, but sometimes I can't even do that because I don't have it, right? So it's never just one way of thinking. It's how do we move it? I can be concerned about it from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's fine. I won't get any sleep. But the second I recognize I can't do anything about it at that moment, 
but I've acknowledged in my own brain, something's not right. Then I can move on it the next day. And I can look at the system. I can look at the, the problem over and over again. So it's all these different ways of looking at self and teams and working together and trying to create the system and governance and policy by recognizing and respecting external influences on, on our own institution. I love that. Um, you make me think about something that people often don't really take into account when they set up a new business or a new system or when they make a big life change, is that I think it's really important that we recognize that when systems are behaving um, unpredictably, there is something usually going on beyond the boundary of that system that's influencing it, a slept factor, right? That's why it's predicting, that's why it's behaving unpredictably. And what we see are poorly designed systems. But what we do is we attribute blame to individuals. So whether that be a government, whether that be a public person, whether that be an individual that we know, because remember the first system that we ever come across is family. And I bet you can all think, and those of you listening today will be able to think of that one individual in your family who's kind of the black sheep. I'm the one from my family, right? That's my background. I'm a bit of a tie-dye kind of sheep, but black sheep, right? We all get these um, different assumptions and different philosophies around what's going on with the system. Yet we never take the time to really peel back the layers to sit down with the people who are trying to do their best with the system. And I think what happens is we end up with these continuously messy problems, a, a real shortage of lack of disruption within the system to stop the behavior. And we end up attributing blame and blame to our leaders. And that's often not the case. I think the majority of the time, it's not the case. I truly believe people are good. I believe systems can be horribly designed. They can be historical, they can be legacies. And we've got good people trying to make them progress. Michelle, you bring up a big point. Um, you're talking about good, are you a good follower? Harvard did some research. They were the first to do it on first followers. And that's what they called it. And they had this video and it started off the research and um, it's at an outdoor concert. And this one person got up and just started dancing to the music. They were sitting on a hill. And as that person is dancing, everyone's kind of looking around, watching this person. All of a sudden, someone else got up right beside them and started dancing. Within a short period of time, multiple people came over and were dancing outside. They talked about that as being the first follower. First followers are just as important as leaders. How do you step up once a decision is made? Uh, I, I will say in Dean's Council, we have a rule that we don't leave until we can all be on the same page. We may not all agree, but we can all be on the same page, that we can walk out of that room and support the decisions that we've made. And sometimes they're wrong decisions and sometimes luckily they're right decisions. But at the same time as a team, we listen, we put it in the, what we call the middle of the room and we gnaw and gnash at it. And we say, I don't really agree with you there. And I agree with you here and uh, all of those different kinds of things. But in that room, after someone puts something in the middle of the table, there's always the first follower. There's always that moment when someone goes, all right, I can get behind that. And it's a very interesting process. And when you become a first follower and then a follower, a good follower behind that, you also have to be a good supporter. You have to be able to understand the language that goes with that. And how do you build that up within the system? And you're going to get the, oh, you just did it because you report to her or you report to him or you report to them, who, whatever it happens to be. At the same time, if you have the language to say, here's why I did it. Here's the moment I did it. When we think about that 
mutually reinforcing activity piece. When we look at how do we all leave the room, leave the institution with that voice, with that first following voice, with that good following, with that understanding what a good supporter looks like, how do we do that? Because we actually reinforce what we're doing. Then, Michelle, back to your blame piece. It's not one person that did it wrong. It's, wow, that was an unintended consequence of what we thought we were doing right. It becomes a very different language and language is very powerful when we're talking about a system and we're talking about blame. And you know what? It's, it's, it's irrelevant to blame someone for something that I call the between the 90 and the, the 10%, because there is sometimes blame that needs to be solely on the square shoulders of someone because something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. But when you go from the 10% to the 90%, really blaming that person gets us nowhere. It's done. It's done. So how do we bring back that problem back to the systems thinking side and say, where did we go wrong? Who wasn't at the table? Who was at the table? How did we decide? What did that look like? The questions, those are the moments um, where you take it apart and you put it back together again without the blame piece. And I think that's when you become a really good functioning system. You have one and the people in it be feel reinforced and supported as they go forward, because it's like, oh yeah, she's not going to call me out and say, I did all these things wrong. What she's going to do is take that problem and put it in the middle of the table and go, what could we have done better? What did we learn from this? Right? Because learning organizations are supposed to be learning about their own issues, not just um, um, throwing things out, right? And thinking it's just a cycle. Yeah, I, I think that's that reflexive practice, right? Mm-hmm. Taking taking it to the next level, taking that time to really deconstruct your own assumptions that were at the table when you made these decisions. But it's a really interesting point. And I think coming from, from somewhere where conflict is a big part of my background, coming from the northwest of Ireland. And you'll notice if you walk past my office on my door, there's um, a poster. Uh, printout and then I have it in my office as well and it's Rumi the Sufi poet and it says out beyond the wrongdoings and the right doings there's a field I will meet you there and I think that's a really big piece of systems thinking it's how can you get people to come and meet you in the field whether it's EDI work like me um, whether it's leadership like yourself Sam how do we get them in the field and make them feel safe enough in that field to have those conversations to bring out those emerging themes to dig into the metaphors like oh you know our system's like a dinosaur it's antiquated or you know that person's just a roadblock how do we dig into all of these pieces keep keeping people safe, keeping people respectful, and really understand what's the culture of the system. Michelle, we can't talk about the system until we talk about the awakening that's really happening. And I feel it. And I, I feel like people are listening like they never have before. Even though there's this huge societal anger at each other, I can honestly say at the college, when it comes to something as important as uh, Indigenous learning and understanding, uh, people have been seeking it out to change their story. How does this impact me? What does that look like? And then how does it look from an educational perspective? Because that was so impactful. The system went as wrong as it can go. The education system, you know, the the genocide, the, the horrible long lasting legacy. But for many of us, someone of my age, it's all new for me. It's something I didn't understand, didn't know, 
didn't occur. So being part of the education system is something I'm proud of. But my intersection now is something I'm not proud of, you know, and people go, well, I didn't do it. It's like, yeah, I get that. I didn't either. But at the same time, we're all going to live with the consequences. So how do we get back in there and adjust the education system, learn, listen, make sure that we're never going to get everything right, but we can apologize and we can learn and we can listen. And when I say awakening here at the college, it has been an exciting past couple of years, but never more so since this last few months, we've had COVID people have, like you said, unintended consequences, and there were no rules for the last two years. So we created multidisciplinary teams to make decisions and all of these kinds of things. And we made them all and we met every Wednesday and it was just, it was excellent. It was amazing as an institution. And then we stopped when Kamloops made that announcement and it was the world sort of Canada just sort of stopped for a minute and said, Oh, wait a second. We got some other things to think about besides COVID. And how do we move forward? We've had budgets, we've had COVIDs, we've had all of these kinds of things, things we can't do all the time. And then that, that moment when everybody's heart broke and what do we do? And the best thing I've ever seen is this college took a step back and didn't have the parade and the music and all those things. We went straight to the elders and we said, what do you want us to do? Cause we want to do something, right? We want to be there for everyone. They said, stop, just stop for a minute, listen, and we'll let you know when we start to go forward again. And it was just one of those moments where I sat there and I thought that is so different than my own mental model. That is so different than my ladder of inference. I just wanted to go and show the world that we weren't anything that was on TV, but that moment of stopping, like you said, Michelle, bringing people, the right people into the room, listening to all the voices. When you think about a system and a system that has awakened to the tragedy and the true stories, how do we weave that through our actual story? And we don't want to, but we have to. We have to, to truly ever make an impact again, we have to. So when you say unintended consequences, I'm not even talking about residential schools. I'm talking about now. We don't know what that woven story is going to do here, you know, but we listen and we're making it a part of our system and we're making sure that the right people are at the table to help us make those decisions. And they may not be the decisions that the leaders always want to make, but at the same time, being able to individually, which is part of that whole system, step back and go, my mind's telling me to do this, but I'm actually not going to do that. I don't have the right data. I don't have the right time. I don't have the right pieces. So when we talk about first followers and leaders and all of those pieces, we are constantly trying to check what that means for a system, especially from a leadership perspective. Uh, Michelle, now you are the EDI strategist. So if something goes wrong in equity, diversity, or inclusion, is it your door they knock on? I blame you. Thank you. Um, I blame Paula. So, you know, as long as we all have somebody to blame, I think that's important, but you know, what do you do? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great point. And I think that's that field, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's educating people 
to know that you're in the field. You're not coming there defensively with a big pitchfork. You're meeting them un, un, unweaponed um, and with an open heart and an open mind. And I think um, when you bring up the, the tragedy and the genocide of the, the residential schools, I think what we see there is a real issue around the philosophy that things were built upon. And I'm even looking today at our own education system, the modern education system, the college education system. Uh, when a system behaves unpredictably, it's often because it's moved away from its philosophy that underpinned it. And I wonder if we're in a time of such flux, a time where we see that um, the philosophy of the Industrial Revolution, which did underpin so much of our education system, is now outdated. And if what we're actually experiencing through the birth of things like micro-credentials, through our Coursera's, our big MOOCs, our open learning, our online learning, if we're actually experiencing the dawn of a new philosophy, a time for us all to regroup as institutions and then come together collectively to have those conversations, because then they should and will include EDI. What comes next? Is our philosophy actually requiring updating? That was exactly the moment I think we're in. And as quiet as I would like it to be for a little while, I think it's not going to be. I think as we ingest what we've done and rethink it and bring all the players to the field, as you said, without weapons, without blame, without all those things, it's not a battlefield. It is truly a field of trying to understand who we are. And maybe, maybe some of the good that came out of the last two years is exactly what you said. There was a crack and that crack became huge. And we're walking through it onto the other side and saying, there's a lot of things we have to rethink here. And how do we do it? And how do we get there from a system that is so rigid? Yeah. And I think, again, it's that that taking a breath and really remembering that we're all influencing the system all the time. So what is it each day that we are doing that changes and shifts that system? Because they're self-organizing. They're constantly evolving and developing. Um, we all have input in it. And I think that's been one of my biggest awakenings um, coming out of a management role and coming over into this role was I actually had time to breathe and think about my role in the system more carefully. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's where I would love to see that encouragement around how do we get other folks to do that? and really take stock and take personal responsibility and also be given opportunity to feed forward and feedback as well, right? Um, because I think it's through building those conversations, building those relationships that we start to get these brilliant emergent thoughts. We start to get the innovation. We start to get the trust. And from there, we can start to formulate what does the new philosophy look like together collectively? Now, that philosophy won't be right for everybody. But if you've got the bigger group, if you've got the, the majority that's all seeing our evolution going in a certain direction, then that at least gets us in the field and gets us talking. You know, for the last few years in education, a lot of people have said, Sam, if I just had time to be creative, if you just created this moment, you know, we can be innovative, we can be all of these things. I would argue with them and say, most of our faculty members and our, our programs actually are innovative. You can be innovative every day. Mm -hmm. It's not this light bulb moment that just, you know, your head explodes and it's the greatest thing ever. Um, since cheese whiz, that invention. When we think about that, you know, now it's creating that moment, mental health. Everyone understands what that means now. 
Am I in a good headspace? All I'm going to say is instead of DDT on those caterpillars, they should have just used cheese whiz. <laughs> they should have used cheese whiz. Everyone would have been fine. Um, but when you think about that reflexive practice, that's the space we need to create. Thinking about our thinking. Yes, because all the other things will come out of that. Our system ideas, our value ideas, our leadership philosophy ideas, because you can lead from anywhere. And I actually believe that you can lead from anywhere. You can lead up, you can leave across, you can lead down, you can do all of those things. Conversation comes and innovation comes out of reflection. So how do we create that time and space when we look within our own system and faculty are in a sprint and leadership are in a marathon? And those are two, you train differently, you have different rules, you have different routes, you have different understanding, you have a different recovery, all of those kind of things because faculty get here and the second they start teaching, they're, they're running, they're, they're sprinting, there's no time for oxygen, there's no time for that reflexive piece. Whereas leadership, try to take it from that, I've got a whole year to do this. I've got three years to do this. I've got a five-year plan to do this. How do we create the space for that reflexive practice between those two paradigms and allow for the thoughts to enter one and the other? I think you've got me thinking there now, because um, it's not about creating space for one specific creativity or innovation. It's really about how does each individual bring themselves back to the game? and back to that moment so that they can be a part of the greater system and the greater changes that are going to be needed. Yeah. And that comes down to that engagement that comes from inclusion and EDI, right? At the same time. Absolutely. Because mm -hmm. my world is not the same as your world, even though we're women in leadership positions. You know, that intersectionality that everyone's talking about, right? So, you know, all people this way think this way and all people this way. And I have to tell you 20 years ago, when we first started talking about diversity, um, I used to go around the province of Alberta and teach about diversity and, and people would be like, what are you going to teach me about today? Who are you going to teach me about today? And I said, I'm going to teach you about you because isn't this fascinating? And then my first exercise often was, all right, so we're going to talk about celebrating Christmas because everybody celebrates Christmas and everybody opens their presents on Christmas day after their mom gets a cup of tea and the cinnamon buns are in the oven. And people are like, well, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I said, yeah, but that's what everybody thinks. So in this room, think about it. How conscious or unconscious are you on equity, diversity, and inclusion? Have you thought about your own story? Because to learn Michelle's story or to learn Donna's story, I think it's important to know my own story and where I sit and how I've been influenced and what that looks like. And we think about weaving that throughout the institution along with health and wellness and along with our NITSAPI strategy we have to think about all of those inclusive of our education system, inclusive of our values and our budgets and the things people don't want to always talk about. But we have to make the system broader because we need all of that in there in order to make it successful. And like you said, the unintended consequences hopefully will be good ones like Yellowstone instead of parachuting cats. Uh, you got me thinking there a little bit about... Um... At what point do we educate about systems thinking? Like for me, it was such an aha moment. I, the way my brain works at a million miles an hour, it was the right thing. I always look at things as a big picture and I just knew it was for me. But there's lots of folks who've never had that exposure. So I know we're talking about a micro credential that will be getting going here in the spring now. I'll start working on it in December. <laughs> um, but uh, as a side project, a side hustle. Um, 
But coming back to where we actually begin this journey, I truly believe, and when you listen to Peter Senge talk and, and, and folks like that, they'll come down to children being natural systems thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we've seen in our industrial revolution-based schools, right? That, that kind of production line, we turn in the product, it's in this form, and we're going to turn out the product, and it will be in that form, and value will be added. And I think what we've seen is we've seen this systems thinking being kind of drawn out of children, this natural ability to think systemically. And uh, Peter gives an example of two little, no, sorry, three little boys that have been fighting at recess and they've gone through systems thinking education and I believe a private school down in the US. So he walks into the classroom and he's walking around and what he realizes is these three little guys have written out a whole diagram, a mental model of when you do this to me, I do that to you, and then we fight, and then you do that again to me. And it's this whole story. It's on YouTube. It's Peter. I don't know if it's Senji or Sengi. I can never quite say it right. He tells this story about our kid, you know, kids, six and eight-year-olds kind of age, being able to go through this whole process of mental models and mapping out the system and understanding, you know, the, the vicious and the virtuous cycles, et cetera. And I think that as an education system, one of the things that we need to be really careful about is we're very reductionist. We break things down into these tiny chunks of learning. And I would love to see us um, possibly look at another way of educating maybe in the next generation, whoever comes after Gen Z, at that more holistic level, that nitsitapi, that that coming together in a holistic way approach, because then we're going to be able to see natural systems thinkers who are thinking about the climate, who are thinking about sustainability as a natural just a natural thing that they do. It's not like you and I, Sam, that we'll have to sit here and be reflexive about our thinking, right? Thinking about our thinking. These little guys are all and, and girls are already set up for success naturally, we're told. So I would love to see some sort of research project maybe tap into that and, and take that to the next step because systems thinking is it's not going anywhere. It's just like equity, diversity, inclusion. I think if anything, we're just going to see it increase in momentum, especially after a pandemic that has really illustrated the breakages in so many systems. So Donna, question number two. (laughs) Well, this has been my easiest podcast interview ever because just asked one question and, and sat back and I could listen to you guys all afternoon. This has been totally fascinating and like a master class in systems thinking. So I'm excited to hear that there's a a micro credential in the work works because I think this podcast should be included in it. No, this has been amazing. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that we've been far more sensible than I thought we would be, but I think it's also because the the context of where we're at right now, there is there is a feeling in the air. You can almost smell the change in the air, and it's a positive change. And um, I can't think of a better institution to be part of to see us through that change, because like Sam says, we we do something so unique. We we peel back the layers of potential in people and let them fly and to be part of that system and improving that system and and making shifts and changes within it every day is an absolute privilege and I never take it for granted so I just can't thank you enough Donna really for taking the time to let me talk about something that I could just chat away about all day and I would encourage anybody 
who has got any interest in systems thinking uh, to look up the Open University free online course on systems thinking. It's like a tiny bite-sized chunk of, of the master's degree that they do. There's very few qualifications throughout North America, but just keep your eyes peeled and you'll see one more hopefully in the next year. Wonderful. And we'll include a link to that as well in the show notes. That's, that's great. So we do have one final question, and it's the last question that we ask everyone at the end of the podcast. And that is, you know, and, and I don't know when you guys possibly have time, but what is something that you have loved learning lately? I'm happy to start that one. Um, when uh, the Indigenous Walk was open up, during our indigenous, you know, the days, we say it's 365 days a year out of absolute respect. Um, but when we were outside and William Singer III was speaking, he didn't have a speech, but he had a moment. And I think anybody that day got to watch that moment because what he did is he pointed to the college buildings right beside him. And he said, there's the formal education that, you know, has affected Indigenous people for such a long time, right? And he appreciates the partnership and he's such a, a part of our own fabric. He said, but today I get to see our education recognized, our Indigenous education. And he had very few words because he couldn't put into words what we could see on his face, that there was finally the moment of that connection between the formal education system and the indigenous ways of knowing education system and how it had been connected here at the college. So I've been doing a little bit of thinking because William Singer III moved me to tears in that moment because his voice was about the true appreciation and that circle moment of, oh my gosh, it finally happened. It, it really truly finally happened. And I've watched people on the walk, it's just outside my office window and they stop and they read and they look and they learn. And we got to be a part of that. So what have I learned lately? I've learned I've got a lot to learn when it comes to indigenous ways of knowing and teaching and practicing, but I'm in the right place to learn it. And I've got the right teachers and I've got the right heart and mindset at the moment to, to be part of something better than yesterday. Oh, that's wonderful that you mentioned that because I went along on his walk as well and, and learned so much and it was really a special experience. And Michelle, how about for you? Well, I'll give you a sensible answer and then I'm going to give you a not so sensible answer. So, you know, I'm on the, uh, the whole way with Indigenous services here at the moment. And I found out through doing some research for a presentation I had to do back in the summer that um, my people were actually designated as Indigenous as of 2017 in the northwest of Ireland. And that was a real wake up call because I was a long way from home when I found that out. What I've come to realize is the original systems thinkers are Indigenous people. When I look at my dad's relationship with the land, when I look at him with horses, when I look at how he always makes sure that he respects and replenishes the land and he doesn't read and write. So he's had no formal education. When I look at that, and I think about, you know, how that practice is there. It's not even reflexive. It's just what they do. I think we have so much to learn. But then moving on just a little step to the right, something I do every day is I have a cup of coffee. And if you know me, you know, I love coffee. It's what I run on. 
Um, so blame the coffee. Um, so I sit down and I read the Stoics every morning. I try and read the great philosophers. I never had the opportunity to go to school to study philosophy. If I could have done, that would be it. And if I think I do another master's, I think it would be in philosophy. I always had to study what I could earn a living from, right? So it was, you know, what can you actually apply this to ESL or whatever? So um, every morning I take a read of the, the great philosophers and I do that quite, quite routinely. And um, finally, and it might be down to my new job of being an EDI strategist, but I bought myself a baron, which is an Irish drum. And I beat the life out of my baron on a regular basis and I learned from YouTube. So maybe it's stress relief. Maybe it's just learning a new skill, but I would highly recommend it to anybody in the middle of a pandemic. So that's a very long, not very sensible answer to a very short question. <laughs> so if we, if we are walking down the hallway and we hear some sounds we don't recognize, we'll know they're probably coming from your office. No, I keep it at home. I have yet to inflict it on Lowell and uh, Marcy, but I'll let you know when I do, Donna. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Well, thank you so much to both of you for um, coming on the podcast today. It's been completely fascinating, and I have learned so much just sitting back and listening to both of you. It's very inspiring, and uh, I'm going to be looking into some of the resources myself that we will post in the show notes. So thank you. This episode featured Donna McLaughlin as host, and Samantha Lenzi and Michelle Nee Darty Derbick as guests. Jordana Gagnon was our producer. Ryan Robinson was our sound technician and editor. Thank you also to Daryl Benebeck, Joel Godry, Kelsey Jansen, and Tyler Wall for their ongoing support and expertise. Our podcast is funded by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning, and Innovation and recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. For more information and inspiration, check out learninginnovation.ca. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and follow us on your chosen platform. Thanks for listening and take care.